Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. For our second interview of the last Friday in February, we have Eva Virgos on the show who is running for group... 28. Circuit Court Bench. Circuit Court Bench. Here in Hillsborough County. And Pinellas County. Pinellas County, sorry. Pinellas and Pasco. Pinellas and Pasco County. So circling back, group... 28. 28, Pinellas, Pasco, the 6th Judicial Circuit, and she's coming in today to talk to us about her campaign, her uh, story, her career, and uh, we're glad to have you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. This is really exciting. Sorry, I had a senior moment there. I've, I've, you're probably like the ninth person who's running that I've talked to, so I could start to get mixed up on the groups and the, the counties and whatnot. So um, you currently are working as a prosecutor, correct? Yes. And is that up in the Newport Ritchie office? Yes. Okay. Um, now, Forgive me if I'm wrong. Are you related to Ken Foote or are you? We're not related, okay. but Ken Foote and I have a child together. That's, that's, <laughs> okay. That's just occurred to me as I was talking to you. So in any event, um, you've been a prosecutor in Pasco County for how long? I've been a prosecutor with the Sixth Circuit for eight, 18 and a half years. Okay. 19 years in okay. May. And has it always been in uh, Newport Ritchie or were you ever in Pinellas or Dade? I did a summer in Pinellas County before my third year of law school, and then when I got hired on for full-time prosecutor position, I was in the Newport Ritchie office. And are you a Florida native? No. Okay. I was born in Greece. Okay. And was in Greece for about eight and a half, nine years when oh, wow. my family... Right. So um, both of my parents are from Greece. Sure. My mother had moved to New York when she was about nine years old and grew up in uh, the Bronx. Okay. And then had gone back to Greece, met my father. They got married and had several children there. And then we moved to the States when I was about eight and a half. We moved to New York for a couple of years. And then we moved to Florida when I was in middle school. Now, I've been to Greece. I went uh, with, well, she wasn't my wife at the time, but my wife now in law school for a study abroad. Mm -hmm. And um, what an experience that was. Uh, I became addicted to tzatziki <laughs> on my trip to Greece, and still to this day, I, you know, just by the bucket load can go through that stuff. Uh, we flew to, is it Thessaloniki? Thessaloniki. Actually, I think we flew into Athens, and mm -hmm. then we had to take a car to Thessaloniki, and then from Thessaloniki, you took a hydrofoil out to the islands, and I think our Study abroad was on Skopelos, but then we also went to Skiathos. We went to Santorini and stayed in Santorini for a while. And then at the end of that trip, we came back to Athens and stayed there for like two nights before we came back. So I want to talk to you about Greece in a little bit. Yeah, we'll, absolutely. We'll, 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 we'll get there. We'll circle back. So are you an only child or do you have siblings? No, I am one of five. Oh, wow. Um, I have an older sister and an older brother and a younger sister and a younger brother. Are you the only attorney in the family? No, my older brother is also an attorney. Where does he work? He works up in uh, Newport Ritchie. He does Social Security Disability and oh, wow. Personal Injury. I card. I get a lot of <laughs> calls for that and I never okay. really send them to. Um, so, uh, so high school was in Florida or New York? In Florida, golf okay. high school. Okay, where'd you go? Golf high school. Okay, and then uh, how about college? St. Leo University. Okay, uh, was that the only place you applied, or did was there a couple places? How did you decide to go down there? Uh, I I had applied to a, a couple of places, but I was I liked St. Leo. I liked the location. I liked everything about it, so I decided to stay closer to home for undergrad. Okay. Well, I I. I I think you're probably the second or third person. I know Judge Taylor went down there and Scott Bonaventure, who, uh, who's running as well. Bonavita, sorry, who's running as well. I think he did some time down there. So mm -hmm. uh, it's good school. Have and you been there? I So my, my sister-in-law, I think, went to dental school down there. You have to go. Just yeah. go take a trip. Bring yeah. your wife. Bring the kids. There's a, a really beautiful lake out there. You can picnic out there. It's just, it's so... You feel like you're coming off the beaten path right. and just 
unwinding for a moment. It's really beautiful. So how did you end up back in, in the Sixth Circuit? Did you work at all down there after law school, or did you come right back here? Uh, well, law school, I went to Syracuse, New oh, York. Oh, sorry, you went to so, undergrad. Okay. Yeah, okay. so law school, I left altogether. Okay. When I was in oh, undergrad... Is a, is a polar opposite. <laughs> so in, in undergrad, I um, did some work with the Sunrise Domestic Violence Shelter, um, I was just e emailing them moments ago. Oh, well, they're yeah. an incredible group of people who do really good work. And so I got a lot. Um, I got involved in the domestic violence sure. you know, work during undergrad. And then I decided I wanted to go to law school. I knew I wanted to go to law school. And so I, when I was applying, I had a, you know, the need to get further away than I oh, did for undergrad, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could have gone to Portland, but Syracuse <laughs> pretty far away, and from a climate perspective, is a lot different, too. It was an incredible experience. I don't regret it for a minute. My, uh, one of my aunts lived up in Syracuse, and we used to go up there every summer, and uh, we'd, we'd go by car, so we got to see the whole East Coast, but I, I thought it was a really cool town, and, you know, it, beautiful, beautiful, nice woods, and, you know, Lake Erie is yeah, up there, and yeah. you just—it's—it's it's an incredible place. It really is. So, uh, did you get what? It's three years there, two and a half years there. Three years there. And did you intern anywhere while you were up there? I my last year, I did a internship with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District oh, of wow. New York. Oh wow! So for a year, I was there, which was a really interesting experience because it took me twice as long to get. Um, my background screening done because of my dual citizenship. Sure. And so it was an interesting experience. What year would that have been? Uh, 90, 1997. Okay. Okay. And which, which, which no, is the... it, no, I, I'm sorry, Josh. It would have been in 2000. Okay. Now, which district is it that's always been involved in the whole presidential deal? Is it the Southern District, the Northern District? I think it's the Southern. Okay. Or, uh, for New York, it might be the Middle District of New York, which okay. would have been down like in... It's the Southern or the Northern, because they're always coming up when it's talking about the Mueller investigation mm. and all this other stuff. Well, that's interesting. It was really interesting. Especially there were... in New York. I feel like a lot of federal stuff is happening in New York. Well, we were border. So, okay. I mean, it's right by Canada. Sure. It's right by, I mean, so you're doing a lot of the border work, a lot of the drug trafficking work, a lot of, there was a lot of pornography work that was being done. And then along with the white collar stuff that, of course, the U.S. Attorney's Office is known for. So it was a really interesting experience. I did that for a year. Wow. And then when you graduated, where did you go? Came back home. Came back home. My The summer before my third year of law school, I came home and I got a job with um, Bernie McCabe. I was working in the appellate division with Marie King. I don't know I if know you Marie, remember Marie. I remember her very well. I, yeah, there was a couple I had to send up the line. Yeah. I was just happy that I didn't have to write. I, so well, I right, because like, county attorneys, yeah. you have to write your when, own. When was, when was that? That was the summer of 2000, uh, or I guess... I graduated in 2001 from law school, so it was the summer before my third year of law school. Okay. I was just wondering if it was when I was there. Cause I, was I think a... you graduated in 2002. Yeah, I was there 2002 to 2005. Yeah, yeah. so it was before you. Okay. Um, and then from there, you went to Pasco? So from there, once I really got to know the office a little bit, and I spent that summer there, which was when I met Ken, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I applied. Are you still together? I don't want to. No, okay. no. Um, he was my uh, trial team coach at oh, Stetson. Oh, was he? So uh, I got to go to Chicago and compete uh -huh. for the national championship, and he was my coach. And, yeah. You know, I, Ken can be a galvanizing figure, but he he's, was amazing very early on in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. He's just got a, a way about him that he kind of owns his space and, and who he's talking to. And he so, does. Uh, you know, as a long, young trial team person meeting Ken, uh, you know, I, I wanted to emulate his cool in the courtroom. And then when I went to the state, of course, he was right. he was in Pinellas and I worked with him. And then since then, you know, we've we've run into each other on here and there. But in any event. Yeah. So um, so I, I applied and I had my interview with Bruce Bartlett and Sean Crane, who is now a sure. circuit court judge, sure. you know. Um, and I was offered a position. My family is in the Newport Ritchie area, okay. so it made sense for me to take a position well, in that. Greek, I'm surprised it's not all tarpon. The tarpon <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, well, that makes sense. And uh, so then you went up there and, mm -hmm. and and misdemeanor court to begin with, and then yeah. So I I started in county court with Judge Sultan at the time, okay. and then I did about 13 months there. 
at the time, which was back in 2001, I was the only attorney in that division. And really? so it was just me and the judge every yeah, single day. Yeah. It was my room, his room, and we would just spend... So you almost learned how to run a courtroom at that time. Um, well, I don't know that I want to say that, but I definitely saw a lot of it. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I did probably... My goodness, I, I don't even know, well over 30, 40 trials during that time period with right. him. And after 13 months, I was promoted to um, circuit, and I started doing work as a felony attorney. And who was the judges that you've been under as felony attorney? Oh, well, I've been in front of Judge Mills, Judge Diskey, Judge uh, Crane, Judge Day, Judge Hansel currently, Judge Andrews, Judge Ballone, uh, Judge Covert, um, so, Judge Bray. <laughs> so I taught right when I was going into law school. I, I don't know why they had a, a law school student doing it. It might have been right when I graduated, but I taught at Eckerd College a class on voir dire with Judge Covert. Okay. Judge Ballone was my LTA in felony. Mm -hmm. Judge Andrews was my first uh, judge that I, not only was the first judge that I was under in misdemeanor, my first divorce trial, which I did two weeks after leaving the state attorney's office, was in front of Judge Andrews. Judge Hansel took me on a warrant uh, delivery when she was still a prosecutor that I tell the story to today because it was the most, because I don't know if they had this in, in, in Pasco, but it was like before you could take time off, you had to do like a couple ride-alongs or something like that. Did they have that with no. you guys? So we, we, I did one like DUI checkpoint, but then I did a warrant one with uh, Mary, and that was just crazy because it was with all these SWAT guys, yeah. fire marshal, EMTs, and it was down on the south side of St. Pete, which, you know, I knew that area very well growing up in St. Pete. And so it, I'm going to hijack this interview for a second because I love the story. I don't know if I've told it yet on the podcast. but So I didn't really know Mary that well. I mean, she was a big-time felony attorney, and I was, you know, still a misdemeanor attorney. And um, they said, well, meet me at this time so i met her and i met her at this building which i'd driven by a million times in my life and i just thought it was like a, a evacuated warehouse well it turns out it's where a lot of the swat and a lot of the undercover people uh kind of it's kind of their station mm -hmm. so i walk in there and there's rap music blaring in one room there's johnny cash in the other they're like lifting weights they've all got ninja masks on and jackets and they have all this gear and so then we go out to this field and they're almost like running football plays mm -hmm. it's like okay, yeah. these are going to be the first guys through and the blah, blah 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 i was like what is going on this is just I, I was scared i was excited i was all this other stuff so we go to this house it's right in the corner of the street it's one of those houses where the bottom floor is a garage and the top floor is an apartment they go up and they do the flashbang in the window and then all of them run up the stairs and i'm just standing there with a fire marshal and I know this neighborhood. It's not one I want to be in. And after hours, I'm sitting here, and I'm, you know, every car that goes by, I'm just my my ears are pricked. And all of a sudden, we hear this glass break, and a body flies out of the second story window <laughs> and lands on the roof of the house next door. Rolls off, hits the ground like a sack of potatoes, and then comes running straight at us. And it was one of the people that one was the there trying to get away. Right. And I was like, my heart in my throat. I didn't know what to do. And the fire marshal had a mag light, and he lifted it up, and he shined it in the guy's eyes, and the guy hit the ground, because I think he probably thought it was a gun with, right. with a light on it. And luckily, that was the end of it. But that was the craziest experience. So forever, Mary Hansel, Judge Hansel now, will be attached to that story in my mind. So sorry She to would off. love to hear that story. I'm oh, sure yeah. she probably, she I don't even know if she yeah. remembers it now. Probably I mean, not. It's... That's probably just a Thursday for her. Right, but, you right. Know, for me, that was a life-changing right. event. But <laughs> anyway, so, and who else did you say? So Judge Andrews, Judge Crane. I knew Judge Crane because, uh, did he do ordinance he, violations in Pinellas County for a while as a judge? He was doing something in Pinellas as a judge for, for a minute there. He was, but when you came on, Josh, he would have been a division director. Right. In county court. He, had, so. he just, he got elected like my first year, or appointed or appointed, whatever, whatever yeah. it was. But anyway, well, yeah, I mean, you've had a who's who as far as judges that you've I have. I mean, 19 years, you go through a lot of a lot of courts. That, and that's a long time to work for the state attorney's office because I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's kind of a point of no return for people of the state. Like, either people leave three or under. If you get past five, chances are you're probably staying there long term. And so, um, 
but that's a long time to work as a prosecutor. So I love being a yeah. prosecutor. I mean, I went to law school to do this kind of work. I, I had no other intention of doing other type of work as far as being an attorney is concerned. I love the the, the things I get to do. I, I've been a lead trial attorney for uh, maybe nine years now. So now I supervise a lot of attorneys under me. I make a lot of the decisions regarding what we're doing and how we're doing it, uh, what charges we're filing, what deals we're giving out, what negotiations we're entertaining. And so I enjoy my work so much. I mean, the only thing I would leave for is the bench. And you've got to be pretty high up there at this point. I am. Yeah. So a couple couple of bones to pick with Newport Ritchie for me. So the first one is is you guys stole Scott Rosenwasser from we us did. over <laughs> in Pinellas County. And Scott is one of my favorite people in the world. We were both Division A attorneys together. He was second in command under uh, Joe Ballone. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was Jason Stedman, Allison Reidenauer, myself, and Aaron Slavin uh, all in Division A. I think Mark Plotnick came up at some point in Division A too. But Scott is just a prince, an amazing attorney, amazing prosecutor. And a voice of reason, I find. He's not, I mean, he's not a pushover by any stretch. He's tried, you know, every case that there is. Uh, but he'll listen to me, you know, if I have a request. It's not just a, a pocket mm -hmm. no. It's, a, you know, he'll, he'll do the heavy lifting and think about it. So I've always appreciated that. And I was not bummed that he went out there. But just because I don't have quite so many cases in Newport Ritchie's right. I do in Pinellas, I don't have him. So Scott's actually in our Dade City office. Oh, is he? And yeah, so oh, he. I thought it was okay, no, well, it's, and so he He I think he has maybe one case in the Newport Ritchie office, and I have a homicide that I'm prosecuting in Dade City. So we cross often, and we talk, of course, because we you know communicate regarding the office and things. But he's not in our Newport Ritchie office on a daily okay, basis. Okay. So I, I'm not going to take full well, responsibility okay. for you, it. You, you, I'm, you, I'm gonna. You've avoided. You've avoided friendly fire on that one. So then the other one is, and I this is this is embarrassing to me, you being a, a, of Greek origin, because it was either Tom Koskinas mm -hmm. or Mike Halkidis. But I think Tom Koskinas replaced me when I left the state. He came from, from Pasco to Pinellas. Yes. So my five years ended on a Friday. Okay. I, I, or my three years ended on a Friday. That was when I left. I went up, talked to Bernie. He said, ballsy move going out on your own. I got retained that weekend on like a five-count L&L in Newport <laughs> Ritchie. And in that case, the, the, the complainant was the mother, and she had like four kids, and she had accused all the fathers of each of the four kids of... Molesting the children. Right. And... You work this, that, that raises some flags. I mean, not that it couldn't happen, but the, the probability of having four different fathers, all of whom are pedophiles, you know, it's a tough sell. So I called that Monday. I had less than 72 hours out of the state attorney's office. Hadn't even received my last paycheck from Bernie. And I got Halkidis on the phone. And I said, yeah, I just wanted to talk to you on this one if I can. Uh, you know, there's there's a couple of a couple of allegations of different fathers, all from this woman and Halkidis goes, you defense attorneys are all alike. You're always trying to... I was like, I literally haven't received my last paycheck from Bernie yet. And he, he softened up after that point. But um, I don't know. I probably just caught him on a, a bad morning. But in any event, yeah. So uh, in any event, uh, Newport Ritchie, uh, there's, there's all these little stories that I have about Newport Ritchie. So I, I always remember that one. So the sex cases, the child abuse, I did about 10 years in just doing those... For us, and you know, we do the live investigations yeah. on all felony cases. Right. And for the Newport Ritchie, all of the child abuse, child molestation um, cases are invested on Fridays. Right. And so for about 10 years, every Friday, I was sitting in a room talking to kids about all of these things. And certainly the things that you're talking about, the fact that there's family issues or divorce issues or things that are going to cause people to have other motivations for whatever it is that well, they're so reporting. So I do family law. And so then so you this know. comes up as a leverage point it constantly does. in family law. It, and it's it's hard because, as you know, sexual abuse of children rarely happens in front of a witness. Right. It's rarely reported contemporaneously with when it occurred, so it's very difficult to get a safe exam. Correct. Get physical evidence. Um, so it's most often the case that you have a child alleging it and an adult 
denying it and that's all you've got yeah that's it and it's such an emotionally charged subject matter for juries I, you know maybe maybe we'll get into that in a minute but it's it's i, I I'm, I'm very interested in how the criminal justice system treats those cases and those defendants because it's such an emotionally charged area it's very difficult to have an intellectual conversation on what we should be doing and that's more of a legislative type of deal right. i mean as a judge you've got to follow the law prosecutor that sort of thing but Obviously. in any event so uh you said you always knew you wanted to be a prosecutor did you always know you wanted to be a judge um no when, I, did, when did that seed get planted if you can pinpoint uh it. probably about 10 years ago. Oh, wow. So, okay. and I, I've, you know, considered it several times. I ran for county court once. When was in that? In Pasco in 2002. Oh, wow. Um, and it was an interesting experience. My son was not even a year old at the time. Sure. So it was, it was a different experience at different that point. Virgos, I'm sure. Oh, my yeah. gosh. It was a completely different Eva yeah. Virgos. Um, at that point, it was, uh, I, I think I had been at the state for nine, ten years, so my level of experience, I felt, was different and right. I think was better suited at that time for a county position. Um, and then I kind of put it in the back burner. My, my son, of course, grew and yeah. is going to be nine this August, four days before or three days before the election, so oh, wow. hopefully this will be a good birthday so present. 2012. No, 2000, when was he born? 11. Okay, okay. So he'll be nine this year. So how have you, well, let me ask you this. Are you, who are you running against? I have one opponent currently. His name is Evan Freeman. I know Evan Freeman. Do I know Evan Freeman? I do know that name. Does he go by a different name, like a nickname or something? Not that I know of. What type of law does he practice? I understand that he did a lot of civil transactional law for a long time in Pinellas County. He um, is currently at the public defender's office in Newport Ritchie. He okay. took that position um, sometime mid-2019. Maybe we're Facebook friends. I, I don't know how it is, but I, I know I, I know I've seen that name before. Um, is this a seat that's opening up because someone's retiring, or is it a new seat, or, or what's the... It's a seat that's opening up because someone's retiring. Who's Judge, retiring? Judge St. Arnold and Judge Covert are both retiring, so there's two Judge open... Judge Covert's retiring? Yes. Well, he was a police officer for a long time, so he I'm was. sure probably. Wow, because I mean, he's he's what, not even a decade on the bench, is he? Um, uh, maybe, he, he has like he, he has to have been more than a decade because I would have been in front of him before 2010. Well, so. yeah, I guess I guess I'm dating myself because I think, I think he got elected right around the time I left the state attorney's office, which would have been 2005, 2006. So yeah, I mean. Yeah. I, I sometimes I feel like I just left yesterday, but uh, oh, St. Arnold's retiring too. When so, but that's not until the fall. I'm just thinking because I've got trials coming up. For <laughs> He'll be there through the year. Yeah, You're good. You. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? But anyway, um, so how have you found your campaign this time around as compared to before? Well, I'm running circuit, so it's well, a lot bigger. That's different, bigger for sure. But I mean, more of a time commitment, more of a. Do you feel like you're a more. Uh, uh, educated campaigner than you were the first time? I mean, I certainly had made a lot of really good connections during the first time that I've maintained because sure. they were wonderful people and I didn't want to lose those connections just professionally. Um, so that's helpful. Uh, as far as going out there, I, I definitely, it's different. I'm, I'm a different person. Um, I think having children changes you in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think you have two, right? I have so two and it does. I, it, and I hated Hated, hated, hated when people said that when I didn't have children. It's true, it though. It drove me up a wall. It was like, I'm an educated person. I'm an enlightened person. I can empathize. I can sympathize. And I probably could, but 100% it changes. It just changes view, you. Your priorities, your values. I agree with you completely. It, it, it just does. And, and for me, um, going from my... And before I had my son, I mean, I would be at the state... 60 hours a week. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it was it was my life. And it certainly is still something that I I love and I 
put everything towards, but I balance my life a lot better now. And so aside from mom and prosecutor, what else are, do you, do you, are you involved in charitable stuff? Do you have hobbies? What sort oh, of stuff are you into? A lot of things that I'm doing are with my son. Sure. His name's Gabriel. He is, um, I'm an Odyssey of the Mind coach for him. Do you know Odyssey of the Mind? Odyssey, and me. he has his competition tomorrow, oh, so wow. wish him luck. Okay. Um, Odyssey of the Mind is a really incredible program. It is sponsored by the schools, and so it is a, uh, it's a competition, and it's a worldwide competition where it's a group of seven children that get together in the same age range, um, and they are given a problem, one of five different problems to choose from, and then they have to solve the problem, whatever okay. that means. It could be a technical problem or a motor vehicle problem or a... Um, so for his competition, he is... Their problem is... Um, the, it's called the Effective Detective, and it is a detective who is supposed to solve one of the world mysteries. Okay. And the world mystery that they have chosen is the finding of Atlantis and why oh, wow. Atlantis sank. So they have to do a lot of research and learn about this subject, and then they have to create all of the props, the skit, the background, the costumes, and it. And they have eight minutes to do it. And you said this is through the school or is this outside of the school? It is through the, the school um, sponsors the teams and then the teams have uh, compete under that school name, but it is a worldwide competition. That's and really so cool. I, I'm surprised I've never heard of that before. It is incredible because you're not allowed to assist them. So you, as a coach, I can yeah, I was wondering what, what does that mean to be a coach? For right, that? so I can um, help collaborate in the sense of, you know, what supplies do you need? Let me write it down and then go to the store for sure, you. Yeah. And you guys need to stop playing around and get to work. But you can't help them. You, you They have to do it all on their own. They have to do everything on their own. So we make sure that they can use the tools properly before handing it to them. But they have to cut their own wood. They have to wow. glue their own things. How and great that is. It is incredible. That so is. they've been working on that since August. And he likes it? He loves it. This is his third year doing it. Oh, wow. It. So he's done it before. And it's my second year coaching, That's and that cool. takes a lot of time. So, and then we have baseball, and okay. <laughs> we have, and so for me, outside of Gabriel, I do a lot of things with the sexual assault team, uh, sexual assault response team for work. I, um, I will go out to the jail and train some of the new deputies um, on courtroom tactics and. For, uh, how to do things inside the courtroom, testimony, etc. Um, I do a lot of things through work, of course, and then as a lead trial attorney, I supervise uh, a number of other attorneys under me. So anytime that they're on duty, I'm basically on duty, and you know how that goes, Josh. Oh, I mean, God. duty, duty calls I mean, at all uh, times. Especially at the beginning, <laughs> it's always Christmas and Thanksgiving. Those and... warrants come all the time, and we go out to the scenes, of course, and so you have to make yourself pretty much available to your to this career. I have a funny story I'll tell you off air about uh, Judge Ramsberger and, and now Judge Syracuse, but at the time, Prosecutor Syracuse, but I'm not going to tell it. Yeah. So, um, well, let me ask, so I hadn't planned to ask you about this, but I want to ask you about this because I think you're probably uniquely uh, situated to educate me on it. I consider myself a liberal person. I'm not going to ask you about politics. Um, I consider myself a pretty pro, uh, progressive person. I, I, you know, I, I not not to say I'm a, a feminist by any stretch, but I, I really try and, uh, especially, you know, now with the daughter, you know, I, I really try and think in those terms. But there was a situation uh, when Kobe Bryant died uh, a couple of weeks ago, month ago, or whatever. And I'm not a big sports fan. I have a, I have a. a you know, entry-level knowledge. Obviously, I know who Kobe Bryant was, but the helicopter went down, and all of a sudden on social media, everybody was saying, um, oh, my God, Kobe, you know, this giant in the world of sports has passed away, whatever. Skip ahead about an hour or two, everybody was, yeah, but he was credibly accused of sexually, uh, I don't know, molesting or sexually abusing or raping or Sexual misconduct. Sexual misconduct with uh, this person. And so I asked the question, and I should know better than to use social media for, for social studies, but uh, I, I asked the question just because a lot of people were almost stating it as a fact. You know, yeah, but he was, you know, he, he was a sexual abuser, whatever the thing may be. And one of the biggest problems that I have as an attorney both in criminal and private practice, one of my biggest pet peeves is when attorneys tell me things as though they were in the room. 
I hate it. Mm -hmm. I try not to do it. And when people report to me, they're like, yeah, but such and such did this. I was like, how do you know that? You weren't there, right? So you, this is what your client or the victim is telling you. And obviously you're an advocate for this person, but you just don't know. And so my question was, did, was he was he convicted of it? Was was it proved to be true? I, I think I recall it being settled out of court. You know, so how do we, what do we know? And someone, someone uh, posted, always trust women or always believe women. And that struck me as odd for a second. And I said, well, does that mean never trust men? Or what, what does that mean? And obviously we're going through the Me Too movement and this has become a hot topic. But, you know, as a prosecutor and, and, and I'm sure as a judge that you find yourself in these situations. And I really, I, I, was, I was intellectually invested with the point of you can't have platitudes in this. You've got to judge it on a case-by-case -case basis because you just don't know what's going into it. I mean, they're very, very difficult cases, as we discussed before, and I promise I'm getting to a question here. But, you know, this person who I respect, the, you know, they said, always trust women. I said, is it? I don't know if I agree with always trust women. And, and I said, maybe I could get behind always trust victims, but even in that situation, I don't know that I can, I really don't think you can apply a blanket philosophy to it. So, sorry, that was kind of a rambling question, but I'm interested to kind of hear your opinion on that. I will tell you that after, I don't even know how many trials that are involved in sex cases or how many um, just prosecution of, I mean, there's been hundreds of cases that I've prosecuted involving sex cases and dozens of trials that I've done through jury trial. And the, the same criteria do not apply to any of them. They're each individual. They're every single time there is something unique and individual about that case, about that person, about those facts, about the defendant, about the victim, if we want to label them defendant and victim in those situations. And I think that the worst thing that we can do is feed into um, any type of rhetoric that just creates a blanket statement across the board because you're going to miss big things. And when you're talking about these kind of cases that kind of, they, they start and they have a life of their own at some point, there's, there's a lot of things that kind of start occurring right away that um, are almost instantaneous. And when you're talking about the type of sanctions that are going to be imposed and the type of criminal sanctions and uh, Department of Corrections sanctions are going to be imposed. You have to take them on a case-by-case -case basis. Especially on children. I mean, no matter what, it impacts them. I mean, wh whether it happened or it didn't happen. Absolutely. If you've got a child who's re false reporting something, that's, you know, emblematic of, a, of, a, of an issue in and of itself that you've Absolutely. got to become concerned about. Uh, but just even going through the process, no matter what happened, just really kind of leaves its fingerprints on everybody involved in it. So I, uh, you know, so I just had a hard time with always trust women. Not that I, you know, that not from any kind of sexual politic thing, but I just was like, I just don't think you can, like you say, kind of use a stereotype or something there. But what are the other big parts about it? I'm sorry, going off on a, a tangent again, but I always, you know, as a prosecutor, I felt like I started off with a probability of conviction in those cases because juries hear that and you can just see it in their reaction, you know, they automatically look at the defendant differently. And it's just a, a thing. And as a defense attorney, you know, with the cases that I've done, I've told clients the best of cases, you're not, it's not a, it's not a even playing field, what you're walking into here. Do you, do you agree with that or not agree with that? Or what, I think it is experience? hard for people to listen to things that involve, especially children, sex, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse. I think it's hard for people to listen to that kind of stuff. And I think that, I mean, having picked those juries, they are the hardest juries to pick. They're harder than homicide juries by far. Yeah. Because most people on your jury panel for a homicide or potential jury panel for a homicide don't have personal experience or don't know someone well, yeah, been who has had... Yeah. Right, or don't have a family member sure. or some other personal experience of somebody connected to them that has this this history. But with the sex cases, most of the time you will not... It's pervasive. It is. And, it, and it, for, for so many years it just was never reported. Correct. It's, and so... Know, with things like the Me Too movement and some of these other things, uh, people are now feeling more uh, supported in being able to report these things. But 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I don't know what the, the, the ratios are, but I, I got to imagine like one in three people either uh, have been or have a family member. I who, can tell you that I have a larger jury panel on a sex case than I do on any other type of case yeah, yeah. that I can pick from because yeah. I just need more people available to me. But that's also why I think it's so important that as a prosecutor, I'm critically looking at everything that is in front of me and to make that decision because I understand that in making that decision, I am starting a process that is you know, going great to... Great power comes great responsibility. Correct, like correct, yeah. correct. And so, so it is, it is a critical decision-making that we have to engage in and, and the conversations that we're having with the adults especially that are involved in these situations have to be such that they might be uncomfortable, but you have to have them. You have to make sure that you're doing everything possible to make the right decision. And then another part of it is what happens after the conviction when you're dealing with what the defendant is getting. And, you know, this is not something that you face yeah. as a judge. Again, you're applying the law, but I really think that uh, we as a society, we as a government, we as a mental health, uh, you know, community have so far to go on how we address this situation because, you know, I truly am convicted through my experience with it that it is an illness. It is a mental illness. You don't have to agree or even comment, with me, comment on it because I know it's somewhat of a hot button issue. But, you know, these are people that, you know, there's an illness and there's got to be something done with it. But because it's such a hot topic thing, it always kind of goes to the extreme, you know, we got to castrate everybody, we got to kill everybody, we got to do all these different things. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a much more nuanced conversation that we as a society have to have on it, but we have to get past the, the emotional outrage of it. Not that those things aren't warranted, of course, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, just a very interesting area. So you can comment or not comment. I, it you're right. The yeah. emotional aspect of these types of cases is different than any other type yeah. of case. Yeah. And so it definitely lends to a different conversation that, than anybody will have in right. any other type of case. You want to talk about uh, drug treatment and, you know, the, the issues that we're having with the opiate epidemics and, and all of the things that we're doing as far as treating that and the types, types of crimes that result as a result of the addictions that people are suffering. I think that people have a different perception and willingness to have that conversation than necessarily when you're talking about uh, sex assault and sexual abuse and things of that nature and it just becomes an emotionally charged topic for a lot of people I think you're right about that so have you thought about um, what it is that you like in a judge or what it is that makes a good judge in your mind uh, you know I definitely have my answer um, but I'm gonna do it a little bit different with you this time and I'm gonna ask you your opinion first okay um, so what is it what's important in a judge for you I think probably the most important thing is temperament yes okay. <laughs> Either we agree or you've listened to my podcast. All right, no, I've, I've been, I mean, I've been in front of 20-some judges at this point, and I can tell you that the first thing that you look for is, you know, is this judge going to treat everybody fairly? Is this judge going to listen and be honest and fair and, and, and apply the law in a way that isn't personal or isn't motivated by something other than whatever is in front of that person at that moment? Um, I've been in front of judges who have very kindly, you know, told all the litigants to stop talking and sit down. And, and there might be times when that's appropriate. And I've been in front of judges who are, who yell and who lose their temper on the bench and who, who get red and, There's know. one or two I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to sit, names, but and you sit down and you yeah. think, okay, like this is, this, this is no longer going to be productive. Right. And I certainly think that of, if I had to pick one quality that I would want to emulate, it would be a good temperament. It'd be and an even temperament. From what I know of you, I can say to the listeners, I, 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 I can't, I can't right away think of what the cases were. I know I've had cases with you, and I, I always came away from that experience, uh, you know, happy with with how I was treated, you know, because you, you, it's, it's as a, as a defense attorney, you're always at least in my opinion, somewhat disadvantaged dealing with the state because when you're in private practice and family law, like I can have a fight with my opposing, I don't mean a physical fight, but I can have an argument with opposing counsel and it can get heated and whatever else. And okay, that guy doesn't like me. That's fine. You make a name for yourself at the state attorney's office. You're 
kind of marked for life. So you've got to really, you know, there's some weight that comes behind you as a prosecutor and you can do different things with it. You can be like you who's, you know, pleasant, professional, you know, tries to really take things as they come and make a, you know, an informed judgment, or you can just kind of, nope, whatever, you know, you know, kind of take it down a certain, certain road. So at least as a prosecutor, I, I can speak to your temperament. And so I appreciate yeah, that, but I agree 100%. Yeah. That is the biggest one for me. And a lot of the times what I've seen, uh, in some different races is these people who it's their third, fourth, fifth time running. They finally get the, the seat and they're just miserable up there. They are just absolutely miserable. And so, uh, people who are running, uh, this time or any other time, if, if, if you'll take unsolicited advice, it's talk to every judge you can talk to and ask them the no frills, no, you know, sugar, what, give me the, 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 down and dirty of what is this job because I don't know if it was Greg Green or Leanne Gowdy or who it was but they were telling me that one of the biggest complaints that the judges have is that they feel isolated. Well they... we go from being these social creatures especially sure. litigating attorneys right. that I mean I'm in a courtroom every day and I'm dealing with my other assistant state attorneys and the defense bar and the public defenders and victims and witnesses and at any given moment I'm having a conversation with five people to basically sitting on a bench on your own and being in the back in the chambers with your JA and your bailiff and so it becomes a different lifestyle. Um, and I, I do know that. I have spoken, which is funny that you say, you know, speak to as many judges, because I have spoken to a lot of judges in preparation for this. And just to, to, to talk and learn, and there's so much learning that has to happen at this point. And the other thing I tell you, and uh, I, this hasn't really occurred to me to talk about on the podcast until just now, but, and, and this may or may not be important to you, but especially for people who are running for judge who haven't ever worked in private practice, Running a business, being a private attorney is, and I'm not looking for anybody to feel sorry for us, but it's not an easy job. And to keep yourself in business, you have to take a volume of clients, which oftentimes has you in multiple courtrooms, if not multiple courthouses at a given time. I mean, I, there's many attorneys who, they got an 8.30 in you know, CJC on 49th Street. They got a 9.30 out at Newport Ritchie. They got an 11 here in Twig Street. And some judges I don't feel are sympathetic to private attorneys. And I don't see it as we're looking for special treatment as private attorneys, but if you're a public defender, you're not going anywhere else that day. You're in that courtroom. If you're a state attorney, you're not going anywhere else in that courtroom. You did that one day. And now I understand with the jail, you got to take sometimes in custody people first. If there's interpreters, you need to have that first. But some of these judges will have private attorneys sitting around for three, four hours, and it's just like, you're killing us. And then, and then they complain when you have to get people covering for you. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're, you need to show up to court. So I have covered. It's like, okay, but call me when the right. docket, the case was supposed to be called right. not three hours later. So, so I will tell you, I, I obviously don't have any civil, civil practice or civil experience, but I do have Ken. Sure. <laughs> and I say that only to say that he's opened his own firm and he has had his own firm since I think 2004 right. or 2005. And so, although I haven't personally experienced it, I've experienced it all First through hand. him. Yeah. Um, I know every time that he has come home and talked about, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, he had to run three three different courthouses that day. And if I have to do depositions in a different county, he's like, well, you know, it's one day right. as opposed to my everyday schedule and the amount of work that has to go into it. And the fact that you are running a law office and you're also simultaneously working the books and you're working the advertisement and you're working all of the other things that it takes to right. to just run, to just run the building and the office and all of the things that have nothing to do with the jurisdiction doctorate degree that you're holding and so so I do I I do understand I feel better than some other just prosecutors who have never had any of that experience right um, what it takes and what that means and I I've gotten the text where it's like I'm still st stuck here and I've got to be somewhere else in 20 minutes and how in the world am I going to get there in 20 minutes because I'm stuck in this courtroom and nothing is moving and so I, I, I feel your pain. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's hard because uh, some attorneys are cocky. Some attorneys are narcissists. Some attorneys do have ego and, you know, they just want to be the, you know, the, the, the bell of the ball. But 
you know, it's just like, I, I really, I, I don't come at it from a point of ego, but it's just like you, like you said, and like it's I hard. said, you got to be a million places at one time. And, that, and some of these judges, you know, you set a case for 830, but you don't cut on the bench till 930. And I understand that you want the PDs to talk to all their clients or the states check in all their victims or whatever those types of things are. But then, you know, you do things alphabetic or you do things whatever. And it's like, I've been sitting here three, four hours. I mean, I gotta go and so take it or leave it as far as advice but if you want the private bar to be voting for you being sympathetic to their plight i i, I have to think might be helpful it has to be and um, i think that you know if if i'm successful which hopefully i will be i think that you know there are important things to do and there are important times to open it up to the to the to the parties that are going to be in front of you to get some constructive input or criticism and learn I mean, I, I think that ultimately um, the, the seat that I'm going to be filling would be a family court seat. Um, and so I'd be in family court, which I've never done. And so I certainly would be... My advice to you on that is don't be afraid to ask the attorneys in front of you for help because they're all too willing to write a brief, write a memo. And I've had judges, you know, I remember when Judge Nazaridin just came over yeah. in family law and I started talking to him about Smith credits. And he gave me that look. Like, what are you talking about? What are you about? talking so, about? Well, so if, if, if you don't know, or for those that are listening don't know, if you're running a child support calculation and the person that you're seeking child support from has a previously ordered child support calculation, if they're current on that previous child support obligation, they get to take that amount of money off of their gross income before calculating the subsequent child support oh. obligation. So there's these different types of things. I remember he looked at me like a, a, a dog that didn't know where I was going, and I said, Okay, and, and, and it was fine. I mean, we knew he was new on the bench, and the opposing counsel was fine. And we said, well, here's, so here's the case, and blah, 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 blah. And, and then we moved on from there. But, you know, I think, I think some judges feel like they have to know everything when they're on the bench, and you don't. That's not what you're there for. You're there for being a finder of fact mm -hmm. and then applying the law. You'll have the law by the time you apply it, even if you don't necessarily have it when you're getting the facts come in. So piece of advice to that end. Uh, another thing that I see uh, before we wrap up is a lot of times when judges are coming on the bench, they have all these great ideas for things that they're going to change. And sometimes it works, but oftentimes in my experience, it doesn't work. And it brings everything to a screeching halt for a while until either someone else is brought in or they figure out that they're not going to do it. One of the biggest ones that I've, I've seen is where you get two pretrials and it's a trial date or two call them dispos over here in Hillsbury, mm -hmm. call them pretrials mm -hmm. over in the sixth. But I don't think you can do that. Or, you know, there's just these kind of things that, that people kind of come up with. And I, I guess you think you're moving it through by setting everything for trial, but what you're doing is you're eating up your trial docket. And you, you know, at least in my experience. So I, I don't know how they're, they're doing it over there right now, but do you, have you thought of things that you, you're going to do to improve uh, the bench or things that you're going to steer clear of or anything like that? I mean, I think that definitely talking about putting forth any blanket uh, rule. rule is probably always going to end in failure Problems. because you, yeah. you can't. You can't successfully yeah. navigate that system that way. Um, as far as changing the bench... I, I want to learn it first. Right. I need to learn it before. I, when I became a prosecutor, I asked the advice of the cops and the other attorneys and the bailiffs. And the I was lucky enough to be working with uh, court reporters at the time before Blue Man. And so I'd ask the court reporters. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have gone into the courtroom as a brand new prosecutor and changed the way we prosecute cases. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't expect to do that as a judge. I, I, I expect well, that's, to that's walk main. into the courtroom and continue to ask those questions of the same people well, probably well um, well <laughs> and then learn before I can make any other decisions. So uh, where can people find you online? Do you have a campaign website? Do you have a where can people find you on social media online? That sort of thing. Social media, Facebook, it's Virgos for Judge. Um, the uh, website is also virgosforjudge.com. Uh, my personal Facebook is Eva Virgos. Um, all the different events and things of that nature up online and on Facebook, so they can find me there. Is there anything you want to tell the voters that'll hear this uh, before you go as far as you know why you want it, why you think you'll be good at it, why they should vote for you? Yes, thank you, I mean, Josh. we pretty much talked about it for the right. past hour, but um, sorry to put you on the spot. No, it's okay. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. I think that as a circuit court judge, you touch the lives of everyone in front of you, whether it's about 
freedom, uh, children, money, um, estates, probate, juvenile sanctions, juvenile actions. I mean, you are single-handedly touching lives of people that are going to be impacted by your decision for so many years to come. It's not in that moment or in that time period. It's going to have a lasting effect. And I think that being qualified to do that and being able to do that well and being able to do it with an open mind and with a good temperament along the way is what we should all want as a community, as a, as a as citizens, and I think that I can do that well, and so I'm really excited for this opportunity. It, well, it is exciting. So excited to have you on. Excited to hear about your your career, your story, your campaign. Have you ever gone back to Greece? I go back often. Do you? We have a house in Greece. So Where, whereabouts? Um, you talked about Thessaloniki. My family is from Volos, okay. which is about an hour and a half north of Athens, and we have a little house on the beach there. And oh, my so God, that sounds we, amazing. <laughs> so Gabriel went back a year and a half ago. He wants to just move to Greece, and we have uh, we go back often enough. It's, it's a beautiful country. It's unreal. It's almost like a fantasy. Now, there's a couple things I didn't love about it when I went. I don't know if this has changed. One of the things, you couldn't flush your toilet paper anywhere that we went, and that was... Yeah, <laughs> interesting for a number of reasons but the other thing is is uh i think we were still in scopolos and uh we went out one night to a club so there's a bunch of cool clubs everywhere every restaurant is amazing i mean literally you walk down the beach and it's restaurant 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 right. restaurant right? and all of them the ripest tomatoes you've ever seen Great beef, food. Mm -hmm. Amazing vegetables. I I got addicted to like Fanta orange soda, <laughs> soda or so I would just crush it when I was there. But anyways, one night we went out, Dean and I, with some of the other students. We were at a club, and for whatever reason, we had an argument or something. And so we were walking home, and it was midnight, whatever. We uh, walk back to our room, and, you know, she's upset. She's not talking to me. Taking off her makeup, everything else, and there was these, like, twin beds on each side of the, the room. We turn off the lights, get into the twin beds, and bam, the beds just slide across the floor into the middle of the room and hit each other. It was an earthquake. And I have never before or since been through an earthquake. Scared the holy shit out of me. I jumped up and I had no idea what to do. I picked Dina up and I ran into the bathroom and I put her in the bathtub and she goes, I really think that's tornadoes. Um, I completely didn't know what to do in an earthquake and so I put her in the bathtub and she's like, I think we have to get out of the hotel. So middle of the night, we go out of the hotel. And the craziest part, I think I've told this before on the podcast, but the craziest thing is with the earthquake itself and then the aftershocks is it shakes all the trees and the biggest bats I have ever seen in my life flying everywhere. So we're out of our hotel. We're exhausted. We've been drinking all night. Our ears are ringing from the music. We're laying on beach chairs by the pool with these bats the size of like you know, cocker spaniels flying around through the air. And I was like, this is the most surreal. I feel like I'm on LSD or something right now. And I promise I wasn't, but it was, so that was my Greek experience. Tzatziki, Fantasota, oh and, and giant bats. You got to go back. There's so much more to do. I know, I know. But we did a cliff diving. I've got great pictures of us cliffed. It was oh, so amazing. But anyway, thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank I'm really you excited about me. your campaign. I wish you the best of luck. And uh, hope you have a nice weekend. Thank you so much, Josh. Right. You too. Take care.